Hi, this is Justin from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where my wife Cassandra, our son Graham, our two guinea pigs Lloyd and Linus, and I are currently enduring negative 50 degree Fahrenheit wind chill weather. This episode of the podcast was recorded at... Good thing you don't need to walk a pet guinea pig. Uh, 2.32 Eastern on Monday, February 4th. Things may have changed by the time you hear this, including the temperature. Keep up with all of NPR's political coverage on NPR.org, on the NPR One app, and on your local public radio station. Okay, here's here's the the show. show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam is resisting calls for his resignation despite continuing controversy over a racist photo in his medical school yearbook. Plus, President Trump is set to deliver his second State of the Union address. We will preview what he's expected to talk about and how we expect Democrats to respond. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. I'm Aisha Roscoe. I cover the White House. And I'm Sarah McCammon, national correspondent. Hey, Sarah. Hi. Good to talk to you guys. We always love having you on the podcast, but usually uh, that means you are in the middle of one crazy national story or another. Today you are in Richmond, Virginia. And let's just rewind to Friday because this is a complicated story that has gotten lots of twists and turns. As we've said, as of right now, as of this taping, seemingly every politician in Virginia is calling on Ralph Northam to resign because of a photograph that was on the page of his medical school yearbook showing one person in blackface and another person in a Ku Klux Klan robe. And let's start our recap on Friday afternoon when a conservative website publishes this and you get in your car and you go to that medical school library. Yeah, I jumped in my car and I went to the Eastern Virginia Medical School Library, which is in Norfolk, Virginia, not far from where I live, and went up to the circulation desk where they put it on hold for me and flipped it open and there it was. What was it like to turn the page and see that photo? Because I think one of the the striking elements of the story is just how like shockingly blunt this is. Yeah, I mean, I'd seen it online, right? Like we all had, but to open up the book and they kind of earmarked it for me because a couple of reporters were starting to come in as well. And to open it up and, and see that image on, you know, it's just your normal uh, yearbook with the kind of grainy cover and the glossy pages. And it says Ralph Shearer Northam and it's got, you know, ordinary looking portraits. And then this, it was pretty shocking. And the governor said it was shocking to him, too. So let's start with this. A couple hours after the story first comes out, Ralph Northam apologizes and basically says this is him in the picture. Let's listen to that. That photo and the racist and offensive attitudes it represents does not reflect that person I am today or the way that I have conducted myself as a soldier, a doctor, and a public servant. I am deeply sorry. So, Sarah, so he was basically acknowledging at that point that he was in the pictures, but now it seems like he's changed his story. Exactly. I mean, he said in in the video and in a statement, he took responsibility, said he regretted the decision to be in the photo in his statement. And then he apologized. And within, uh, I mean, not even 24 hours, more like 12, he was saying the opposite, that he'd had some time to reflect and talk to people like his classmates and his family. And he didn't believe he was in the photo after all, that that he'd actually only just seen it for the first time on Friday when it surfaced, that he didn't own a copy of his yearbook, and he didn't know how that picture got there. 
That's very difficult to understand, given that the administrators from the school have said that really the only people who had anything to do with what pictures got on those pages were the students themselves. And he looks to be putting all of his favorite pictures of himself together on two pages. It totally looks that way. Now, a theory that he sort of advanced in the press conference was that perhaps there was a mix up that, you know, maybe some photographs got switched around or something. And he said that he'd been told that happened sometimes. The other reason he said he knew that wasn't him, and this was a moment where the press conference got, you know, kind of strange, was he said, I know that this wasn't me because, and I'm paraphrasing here, but because he said he remembered another incident from a little bit later, right around that same time in the mid 80s, that he remembers with regret now, in which he did wear a black face as part of a Michael Jackson costume. So he said, I remember that. And so I'm sure... I would remember this other thing if it were true, but it's not. And this is where the press conference kind of went into Mark Sanford levels of farce and absurdity. Of course, he was the governor who did not resign, but was uh, he said he was on the Appalachian Trail. when in fact, he was having an affair in Argentina. That was like the the high bar for weird press conferences from governors. And I think right. Ralph Norton exceeded it because, Sarah, there were some weird questions and twists and turns. But I feel like repeatedly watching on TV, at least, and I'm curious how you felt being there. Ralph Northam just gave the vibe of someone who didn't quite comprehend the seriousness of the situation he's in or the seriousness of the offense, pointing out, hey, I won the dance contest. And of course, somebody asked, can you still moonwalk? And he took a step back and looked like he was about to try until his wife said, inappropriate circumstances. My wife says inappropriate circumstances. And it was just as awkward in the room as you think it was. And after that, after he was asked about the the moonwalk and he seemed willing to do it he kind of laughed about it which is weird just for the whole situation and and the way things were happening uh to kind of be laughing about it and that was on top of him feeling the need to point out that he won the dance contest and i think at one point he talked about how hard it was to remove the shoe polish from the blackface i mean he just said so many things that were just off the wall and tone deaf and offensive in a press conference where he's trying to defend himself. The tone surprised me a little, to be honest. And and people I talked to yesterday in the Richmond area, at least one woman said that, that the tone to her didn't feel serious enough. So the whole story has been very strange because on the one hand, even though he faced a lot of controversy this week, even before this, which we'll talk about in a moment, Northam was a popular governor. He had gotten a lot of stuff done. He seemed to have good relationships with with a lot of lawmakers from both sides of the party. But you had Democrats all calling for him to resign very quickly, just saying that even if this happened decades ago, blackface and obviously Klan robes are just incredibly offensive and tap into hurtful racist imagery. The Klan is a, a terrorist organization that murdered people in cold blood. So this is a very serious picture. Uh, And I think that's what people are are reacting to when there have been these calls from virtually everyone for him to step down. Both of those things, the Klan and blackface, are beyond painful and beyond uh, kind of horrific things in this country uh, and in this country's history and to have that kind of as a joke on your yearbook page, it raises questions not only about Northam, but about the whole organization, about what was going on at this medical school that something like this could happen. And these are people that are going to go on and uh, presumably have black patients. And and they're at parties doing things like this in 1984. So I think that's the seriousness with which uh, people have responded to this. 
We should also bear in mind that this is not this is not a criminal proceeding. We are not sending Ralph Northam off to jail. What we're considering here is whether he should continue as the governor of the state of Virginia, the symbol of the entire state and all its people, when there is a blot on his personal character such as this, even if it was in the past, it is forever going to mark the way people think of him, and it's going to make it impossible for him to govern. And the last thing I'll add before we turn to the latest twist in this, Sarah, is that, you know, all this happening in a state that has a deep history, not only as part of the Confederacy, but also a whole lot of moments of racial pain throughout the history of Virginia, up into and including the Charlottesville death and white supremacist march from, from two summers ago. Exactly. This was a slave state. Um, I went to an African-American church outside of Richmond yesterday morning, a Sunday morning, and I spoke to lots of people there. The pastor gave a sermon where he didn't really address this directly, but he did talk about, you know, the church has been there since 1880. He said it's only been there because people have continued to persist um, in their faith and have, have, you know, gotten through, he said, through lynchings, through firebombings, through all kinds of horrible things that have affected the black community in Virginia and beyond, right? It's very much on people's minds. So, Sarah, given all of this, and, and as we mentioned, every single Democrat running for president is calling on him to resign, in addition to all his close allies, what is Northam's argument right now for not resigning? During his press conference on Saturday, which is the last time he's spoken publicly as of this taping, he said that he felt that resigning would be the easier path. Um, he said he wanted to have to take time to look into the origins of this photo and to have a, a serious conversation about race, to have the kind of difficult conversations he thinks need to be had. I asked him at that press conference, I said, you know, you say this would be the easier path, but it's the path that all of your allies, including the Black Caucus and the NAACP, have asked you to take. Why not take it out of respect for them? And, and he basically said he, he wanted to have more conversations and eventually said that, you know, if those groups continue to still call for his resignation, he would think about it, uh, essentially. But they do continue to still call for his resignation. And even after this press conference, uh, everyone has pretty much held fast on that or doubled down. And one of those people who's a friend and an ally and described this episode as, as heartbreaking is Terry McAuliffe, the former governor of Virginia who preceded Northam. Northam served under him. And he, too, has been very clear. For me, morally, the only right thing to do, and it was hard. I called Ralph on Friday night. It was one of the hardest things I had to do. Uh, was my lieutenant governor. We worked closely together. We did so many great things working together for the Commonwealth of Virginia. But once that picture where the blackface and the Klansmen came out, there is no way you can continue to be the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And that was on CNN on Sunday, and, and he's repeated that since. So pressure is continuing to grow. Maybe he won't be governor by the time people listen to this podcast. I mean, this is a really up-in-the-air story right now at this point. If Northam does resign, Justin Fairfax would become governor. He'd be the youngest governor. He'd be only the fourth black governor in the history of the United States. Sarah, what else do we know about him? He's been really well regarded, uh, at least by Democrats that I talked to. He's young, kind of seen as a rising star. He's like 39. And up until today, and we'll get to that, um, it, it was seen as much by some Democrats I talked to as a much better political option for, for Dems, right, to, to sort of be done with this Northam scandal, have a young up-and-coming figure take over. In Virginia, you can only run, um, you can't run for two consecutive terms. So 
Fairfax, if he takes over, would have the advantage of being an incumbent in 2021, the next gubernatorial election, being able to still run for another four years, which is unusual. So there's not a huge downside for the Democrats to him taking over. There are a lot of downsides to Northam continuing to stay in office with all of the uh, opposition he's faced from within the party. And now he's facing his own potential scandal. Right. So early in the day, Very, very early, the lieutenant governor's office put out a press release basically denying uh, allegations. They were not really specified in the press release, but he said they were uh, false, uh, that it surfaced online. And as it turns out, these were allegations that surfaced on the same conservative website, Big League Politics, that first brought forward the northern photos. And uh, a woman accuses him uh, of sexual assault, in short. Now, it's a really complicated story. We haven't verified any of the accusations ourselves. The Washington Post, Fairfax pointed out, had heard about this and had looked into it and decided originally not to publish a story about it. But now the Post has, in in the wake of uh, Fairfax's statement, put out a story sort of explaining the process they went through and and essentially saying not that the the story wasn't credible from the woman, but that it just was not conclusive enough for them to publish a story at that point. All right. So... A lot's going to change in the story. We will keep you up to speed in all of the twists and turns once the picture becomes more clear. Ron, last thing I want to ask you before we uh, take a quick break is that I think this fits into a broader trend that we're seeing with the National Democratic Party, that as the Democratic Party goes after President Trump for being, in their terms, sexist, increasingly Democrats are outright calling him a racist, uh, a lot of different things. The party has had to show zero tolerance at all for anything like this within their own ranks. Ralph Northam, I'm thinking about Al Franken, who was pressured to resign from the Senate. The Democratic Party, as it diversifies, as it becomes the party of women, younger voters and minority voters or people of color, uh, has got to deal with its own ghosts. And the Democratic Party, of course, as the the party of the South, the party of the Confederacy, the party that uh, had to be brought slowly around to civil rights in the 50s and 60s, uh, they may be today the best friends of people of color, but they have not always been in the past. And their history is as the party of segregation, the party of the Confederacy, and the party of slavery. So that is a memory. It is far in the past, but it is something that can be brought back, and it is brought back by exactly this kind of old symbol, as has been seen in these photographs in this yearbook. And that is why so many Democrats have found it absolutely necessary to denounce it and grant no quarter whatsoever to Ralph Northam. The timing was interesting. Uh, it came right on the heels of another big controversy involving a big debate about abortion. Um It feels like it was months ago, but just last week, a Democratic lawmaker introduced a proposal to remove some restrictions on abortion, including in situations uh, in the third trimester where there's a severe fetal deformity or a a danger to the woman. And that sparked a big debate about um, abortions later in pregnancy. It sparked accusations against Northam of supporting infanticide because of his support for aspects of the bill. Right. And he spoke about it on the radio in very cold clinical terms that, you know, maybe you would speak about if you were a doctor, but certainly coming from a governor discussing a bill really 
jumped out and, and caused a ton of controversy. If a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly uh, what would happen. Um, the infant would be delivered. Uh, the infant would be kept comfortable. Uh, the infant would be resuscitated if, if that's what the uh, mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. So, so I think this was really blown out of proportion. There was a whole speech given on the floor of the Senate by Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, who you would think would be a fair distance removed from all of this. And nonetheless, he was so outraged by what he heard Northam say that he gave an entire speech about it on the floor of the Senate. You know, abortion's already an emotional issue. This was a very emotional debate, and that came right before this photo surfaced. Thank you so much for your reporting on this. Uh, Like I said, there's so many questions that are hanging out there right now. We will definitely be talking about this again on the podcast. Sarah, we're going to let you go. Either keep reporting or or take a break, whichever whichever (laughs) is next on your schedule. Maybe a little bit of both. All right. Uh, Thanks, Sarah. We'll talk to you soon. We're going to take a quick break, come back and talk about tomorrow's State of the Union address. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Aslo. If you're a freelancer or a small business owner, you've probably got an overwhelming number of responsibilities competing for your attention. Aslo is trying to make one of those tasks easier, opening a business bank account. Aslo offers free, easy-to-use business banking with mobile deposits, bank-to-bank payments, and built-in invoicing. Learn more at azlo.com NPR. Every day on her way to and from work, Laura Bates, like millions of women around the world, suffered indignities, big and small. It just made me sit down and, and ask myself, why is this normal? She launched a website called Everyday Sexism, and thousands of women, and even some men, started to share their stories, too. Ideas around gender and power on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. And we are back with Ron and Aisha to talk about the State of the Union, which is tomorrow. So, tomorrow, this is the uh, rescheduled State of the Union, which is a rarity. Uh, Aisha, what do we expect President Trump to be talking about? Well, the White House is basically saying that this is going to be, uh, once again, for for a State of the Union for President Trump, something that's going to present a unifying vision for America and something that's going to be bipartisan. So something very different from the past few weeks. But basically what they're saying is this is a State of the Union, so they want to rise to the occasion. They want to take that more positive tone for uh, a State of the Union. And so uh, that's what they're they're planning to do with this one. But Ron, even if he does that, as he's done in the past, this is still taking place uh, with the deadline clock ticking of these heated negotiations over what to do with the border, what to do with the wall that led to a month long government shutdown. So how do you how do you mesh unifying with that reality? It's very difficult to drain the partisanship out of this particular moment. As badly as the president would like to be seen as the bipartisan figure, the greater than the sum of its parts, the the father of his country role that oftentimes State of the Union delivering presidents have tried to achieve, he would love that because he would love, among other things, to unite the country and also to take less of the blame for the shutdown than he's been getting in the polls. So with the Congress trying to come up with some kind of a deal by Friday, and it really kind of needs by Friday because they need to put together legislation to actually get it to work and get the president to sign off on it. So if we're going to get a deal-driven avoidance of a shutdown, then it has to be done pretty much by this Friday. So there's not much time left. Very few people holding out hope that that can be done. The president would like very much to set the stage to not get the blame if the government were to shut down again. Aisha, the White House said it's 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 broad bipartisan themes 
Uh, any particular new policies we expect to hear about? President Trump is supposed to talk about uh, this push for infrastructure. He's been talking about that kind of since he came into office. Uh, So there is going to be some type of push for that. And he may give a number of how much he wants to invest in kind of rebuilding uh, U.S. infrastructure, which he says is crumbling and declining. And then there's also uh, going to be talk about lowering health care costs. And and basically, uh, this is been something that the White House has talked a lot about and as a potential area where they could work with Democrats, basically how to cut down on expensive hospital and doctor bills and how to cut down on prescription drug prices. So, right here's the thing that I keep thinking of, though. Uh, the last couple State of the Unions... If you want to be a stickler, in 2017, it wasn't a State of the Union. He just happened to be addressing Congress a in a State of the Union-esque yeah. setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last few, he does set aside his day-in, day-out, you know, partisan trench warfare approach, gives a broad speech, gets gets reviewed uh, as such. And then, you know, the very next morning, he's back to his usual self. There's no extended rollout of the new policies and kind of everything reverts to the State of the Union having never really happened. I mean, how much of a big deal is this compared to, you know, the past in terms of the State of the Union being one of those annual benchmarks where everyone checks into the president? There's been a lot of discussion in the last month because of Nancy Pelosi inviting and then withdrawing the invitation and then extending it again. How much do we really need? How much do we really love the State of the Union? Is it something that we need to see every year or is it basically an advertisement for the president and his agenda? And to some degree, it is both. It is an advertisement for the president and his agenda, but that is his role as president to propose and let Congress dispose. His role is to set the table. It is a part of our expectation as a general public, as a voting public, that we will see this much of our government. But even in this set of circumstances, I think people still expect to see the president come out and do his thing and Congress to respond. So President Trump is the one speaking, but there's going to be a lot of attention paid to the Democrats in the room, a whole lot more than there were his, his first couple. And uh, I guess my big question is, how do all of these new Democrats respond, particularly the more high profile uh, freshman Democrats who have been very clear that they are there to oppose President Trump as much as they can? Well, for starters, I doubt they'll be very enthusiastic in terms of their applause on the floor during the speech. We'll see a lot from the Republican side, not so much from the Democratic side. And by the way, it's not going to take too much visual imagination to tell which is which. The Republican side is going to be white males, overwhelmingly. And on the other side, it's going to be primarily women and people of color. Uh, There are going to be official responses, one delivered by Stacey Abrams, who was the unsuccessful Democratic nominee for Georgia governor November 2018. She's going to give the official response, Becerra, who's the attorney general of California, is going to give a Spanish version. And there may be others who actually go and make something they put on YouTube and put online. Bernie Sanders has done that pretty regularly. We may see him again this year. And you are going to have uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, sitting behind him, right? That's going to be a big change mm-hmm. from uh, his past State of the Union and the joint address, right? People are going to be watching very carefully to see if those two eyes roll at any point during the president's 60, 70, 80 minute speech. There is that drama of having a Democrat and a woman and certainly a Trump opponent sitting immediately behind him instead of Paul Ryan. Yeah. And when when Democrats took back control of the House of Representatives back in 2006, I think there was a memorable moment where, where President George W. Bush began his next State of the Union with a tribute to Nancy Pelosi. 
Aisha, has the White House indicated either way whether Trump will speak to Pelosi about Pelosi? Because, you know, we, we've we talked a lot about how he seems to weirdly respect her in a way that he hasn't respected other Democrats. But he also had some tough words for her this weekend with an interview with CBS. They've been cagey about that. We talked to an administration official who was kind of asked about how tough the president has been on Democrats and basically saying they want crime and all of this stuff. So how can you kind of square that with some bipartisan message? And this official basically said that, yes, there are these areas, especially when it comes to immigration, where there are big disagreements, but that the president is going to lay out a a possible bipartisan path forward. What that will be, we don't know. And whether that will be kind of like a genuine uh, concession or just kind of if Democrats support a wall, then we'll have a bipartisan agreement uh, is is remains to be seen. But right now they're they're not saying that he's going to specifically call out Pelosi. I mean, an actual bipartisan path forward would be quite the departure from the first two years of this administration. I think that's fair to say. We asked, is there anything new that can be said about immigration at this point? I mean, President Trump has done a primetime address. He's been to the border, all these things. And and basically the official said, yes, there is something new that can be said. So we'll have to watch and see. Is there going to be any kind of an announcement here about North Korea or China and leaders meeting with Donald Trump? They didn't want to get ahead of that. We know that they're going to talk about Venezuela and we know that China will play a big role in this address because President Trump is going to talk about trade and he is supposed to give some type of update on where things stand in the trade negotiations with China. Uh, But almost certainly there will be some discussion of North Korea because President Trump views that as a big area of success for his foreign policy and he has a meeting coming up at the end of this month with uh, North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un. And last question for both of you. There's going to be a Democratic response. It's Stacey Abrams. She's a rising Democratic star and one of the few rising Democratic stars not currently running for president (laughs) or thinking about it. Uh, There's been a push to get her to run for Senate next year, but she hasn't said anything either way. Ron, what makes or breaks a uh, Democratic or Republican response other than not tripping up and having a gaffe moment? Not having a gaffe moment is big because that has been so common for these speeches. Looking not so much like the president was the be-all and end-all of your evening in this response is a little difficult to do because, among other things, they write them in advance and they basically script them in advance. So it's hard to really react to the meat of the president's presentation. So they always look a little stagey and stiff and it's hard to do. But a good sincerity of we have a message in our party, it's different from the president's, but we respect him, that kind of thing. Keep it short and look right into the camera and don't lurch off camera. I think one key is to not have any prop people in the background, because in the past, when you have like regular folks sitting around with you, just like staring straight ahead, it is not a good team. Because they don't know what to, where to look or how to. (laughs) It's just like, why are they, who are these people? Well, on that note, you can join us tomorrow night for a recap of both President Trump's State of the Union and whether there were any gaffes that we'll be talking about in the Democratic response. Uh, Of course, you can hear the speech in real time on your local public radio station and go to NPR.org where we are going to do what we've done for the last few years and do a real-time fact check of that speech. So again, that's on NPR.org. And then check your podcast feeds late into the night or early Wednesday morning for our recap. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. 
I'm Aisha Roscoe. I cover the White House. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. Thanks so much for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.